Hi, everyone. My name is Aram Arslanian, and welcome to the first episode of our podcast. I'm a coach who's worked globally with leaders and teams from the C-suite to the front lines on leadership and communication. Prior to this, I worked as a clinical counselor in the not-for-profit sector with a focus on addictions and mental health. My entire career has been about helping people, and along the way, I've seen a lot of triumphs and some pretty tough things. I founded Cadence Leadership and Communication to support organizations in building a better workplace. And I believe this starts by having a strong understanding of ourselves and others at the center of our approach to work. My goal with this podcast is to explore real-life struggles that impact the workplace and create a dialogue around them. I want to take on the topics that we may avoid because where there's silence, there's a missed opportunity. We can build a better workplace. And we do that by opening up the lines of communication. For this episode, I wanted to discuss a topic that's crucial for the business world, and that's diversity and inclusion. What does it mean? Why are some people resistant to it? And how can we help companies make good on their commitments to creating change? So, welcome to episode one, and this is One Step Beyond. Today, we have two fantastic professionals joining us, Michelle Rakshis and Carrie Fraser. Michelle is a diversity and inclusion manager at Amazon and the president of the Women at Amazon Seattle chapter. She focuses on using data to make measurable changes to the diverse workforce at Amazon globally and creating an inclusive environment for employees. Prior to her role in diversity and inclusion, she worked in product management for tech and design teams at Amazon. And previous to that, she also worked within entertainment marketing. Outside of work, she's been a speaker at events such as Ladies Get Paid and Geek Girl, and is a mentor for Built by Girls, and also sits on the programming and scholarship committees for the Grace Hopper Conference. Carrie is a senior human resources leader, bringing experience working across a multitude of industries, including hospitality, retail, and real estate. Based in Vancouver, BC, Carrie joined Colliers in 2009 and has led the organization to some notable achievements. These include being an Aon Best Employer and receiving the Best Employee Engagement Strategy at the Canadian HR Awards in 2016. That same year, she was also named a finalist for the Canadian HR Leader of the Year. Carrie oversees the North America People Services Team. Her focus has been on building a human resources function to support the company's rapid growth strategies. She has a passion for collaborating with leadership teams in developing solutions to enhance engagement and inclusion. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Awesome. All right. So this is a big topic today, diversity and inclusion. And one of the things I want to call out uh, right off the bat is we're in a space where we all come from a similar cultural space. You know, we have some differences across the table, yet we're already in just within our group saying, like, how could we be more diverse? And we're going to crack into that more in our conversation because I, I think that's like a real common concern for people in the business world where we're saying we want to create change, but very often when we're starting from is we're looking across the table at people who might look exactly like us. 
So we'll enter into that conversation. And I want to call that out now uh, at the beginning, just to give our audience something to think about in advance. And also we can start thinking about that and how we can respond to those things as we go along. So the first question and one that I hear all the time in my work in the corporate world is what is diversity and inclusion? You know, they're usually used together. Sometimes they're used separately and sometimes they seem to almost be the same thing. So I really want to demystify for people what is diversity and inclusion? What do we mean by that? So Michelle, what could you tell us about that? Yeah, diversity and inclusion are often used at the same time or even within the same job title, such as my own. Uh, at Amazon, we have defined diversity and inclusion for the sake of having a common language amongst all of our employees. Mm -hmm. We use the definition of diversity as a combination of unique skills, experiences, perspectives, and cultural backgrounds that make us who we are. And the definition of inclusion is being valued, trusted, connected, and informed so that we could deliver the best results for our customers. And you'll note in there, we do include the term customers because we are a very customer obsessed company <laughs> and we are looking at this in that lens. How yeah, can yeah. we make our employees more diverse and more an, an inclusive company to help serve our customers? Mm. So this could be, you know, different when we're looking at society at large and people are doing research for uh, academic institutions. Mm -hmm. But these are the definitions that we most commonly use in the office. And to summarize, you know, really diversity is who is sitting at the table. Inclusion, those are the behaviors that welcome and foster diversity within the company. Okay, so could we boil it down even, even further and say diversity is about the person and the inclusions around the, is about the environment around them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to do because inclusion is accommodating all of the differences between people. It's mm -hmm. not just gender, it's not just ethnicity, it's not just people with disabilities or, you know, the other forms of inclusion that we're looking at. You know, we also want to just make it a great place for both introverts and extroverts mm. and, you know, people who just think differently. You know, there are people who might be uh, on the autism spectrum and we want to make sure that they're equally welcome at the company as, you know, somebody who doesn't think in their manner. Yeah, awesome. Great. Thank you. Carrie, uh, what's your thinking on this one? Yeah, I mean, that's very well said. I think of it as diversity is the differences that each of us bring, mm -hmm. and inclusion is what we actually do with those differences. Ah, cool. That's a great way of looking at it. So would that align, then, we'd say that the diversity is about the person and inclusion is around the environment that we all create together? Correct. And it's respecting and bringing the best out of each of those differences. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I want to get more into the, to the uh, misunderstandings that we hear around this a lot. So very often I hear people say, oh, it's, it's our inclusion work. And then later on, same conversation, will be like, oh, it's our diversity work. And maybe even later on in the same conversation, it's our diversity and inclusion work. And they seem to be using the terms to just replace each other. So we really want to tell our audience here, one is about the people and the differences that they have and they, they bring. And those differences can be huge gifts. They, we don't want to pose them as being barriers, but they're gifts. They can help tease out different kinds of thinking, make us stronger teams, stronger companies. And that inclusiveness is what we build together to yeah. make sure people have a voice. They've got a seat at the table. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Um, question for you. Around these two words, I can imagine both of you have probably had a lot of common misunderstandings or a lot of common 
maybe even reactions when you talk about it to people inside the company or outside the company. So for example, if we say, um, Michelle, when you had said, you know, we want everyone to feel they have a seat at the table, I could imagine that that might elicit types of reactions from people. So what kind of reactions would you, would you hear from people around that? We do hear lots of different reactions from different people regarding that question, be it uh, based off of their past experience, past experience at different companies, what country they're from. Mm-hmm. Um, inclusion and diversity equally get uh, very different treatment in different countries. Amazon's a global company. I work on a global team. If I am talking to one of my team members in India, when I say diversity, they default to think gender diversity. Mm. Where if I'm talking to somebody in the United States and I say diversity, they might think gender diversity, they might default to minority representation. Mm. Where minority representation is very different in India or China or Japan, where we have our other teams at. So often I'm trying to you know, really get into the details and describe what I'm talking about when I'm saying these are our upcoming goals or these are the problems we're trying to solve and really give as much detail as I can to the audience I'm speaking to to try to demystify the problems that we're trying to solve specifically with a goal. Right. So I find that really interesting. So people might come up and be like, yeah, we're ready to talk about diversity. So we've got all these um, programs for women in leadership. Period. Like, that's it. That's the end of the conversation. And that's not diversity at all. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> and really, the idea here, it's that they're not, the intent is to not um, leave other people out of the conversation. Their scope of diversity might just be way too limited. Absolutely. Just focused on, on one audience. And, you know, one of the other things, you know, we're constantly talking about is we want more diverse people. So we're trying to recruit at our company so we could have a more gender diverse or a more ethnically diverse team. Diversity for us also includes people with disabilities, Mm -hmm. people with military backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure there's lots of other ones that I'm not thinking of as well, but uh, also LGBTQ status. These are all things we can or do not track due to legal constraints. Right, right. I still want it to be an inclusive environment. Yeah. So when I'm talking about diversity and recruiting, I can't say, great, let's go hire a whole bunch of people with disabilities. Right, right. That, that's not okay. Yeah. But when I'm talking about inclusion, those are problems I'm trying to solve. Mm-hmm. So when we are trying to speak to our different audiences, if I'm talking to the recruiting team, I'm specifically not talking about people with disabilities. Right. When I'm talking to the facilities team, they don't care about recruiting. They want to know who actually works and how we can make our office buildings a better place for all of our employees. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's that's really good. I, mean, I want to circle back on that. I'm going to throw it over to Carrie. So when we're talking about diversity and inclusion and how people are, are using these words, what are some of the responses? Or And they could be positive responses. They could be pushback. They could be um, spaces of people not understanding. What are some of the things you come across in your role? Yeah, so I think it's all of the above that you just said. Um, So what I experience is that people tend to go to the diversity space first, because I think it's easier to understand. And well, we can recruit or we can do this better, but where there's a real lack of understanding is in the inclusion space. And so what I'm learning is that the hardest part of this is that leaders, most people think that they know more about diversity inclusion than they actually do. And 
when they're asked to change, it's much harder than they anticipated. Mm -hmm. So I think it's in a real emotional space for people. Mm -hmm. um, even myself, it's a, it's, I don't, there's not very many other topics at work that fuel such a passion, right? Yeah. So um, to make sure that you're keeping this in a positive space with leaders is, it's challenging. Um, I love, you said something in there, like everything you just said, yes. Like, and you know, of course, because it's a podcast, you're not going to get to be able to see the, the body language. But when Carrie um, said, you know, it's an emotional space for people, like all three of us leaned in towards our microphones. We got a bit more energized because we all feel that people care, but people are also afraid. Yeah. It's a changing world. You said something here I'm so curious about. You said, and I'm learning. And I loved that because it's the idea that, well, yeah, you know, it's it's part of your roles. It's a huge part of both of your roles. But that um, acknowledgement that you don't come in baked in with all of the knowledge, you're still learning. So if you could tell us a little bit, like, what has your journey been about learning about this stuff? Like, if you want to talk about, like, how you've learned or where you've gotten knowledge or even what it's been like for you as you've grown and changed through it. Sure. So how I have learned and continuing to learn, and I think it will be lifelong learning in this space, is um, I've gone and taken a lot of courses. There's so much available out there right now. I've gone and uh, done an online course through eCornell to be a diversity inclusion certified specialist. Mm -hmm. I read a lot, I listen to podcasts, I follow a lot of different people on Twitter or Instagram. Um, I read books, so I'm just constantly trying to expand my knowledge in this space. And it might even be something as little as like right now, it's the month of Ramadan. So I have three people on my team that are Muslim. It's really important for me. Like, why can't I take 10 minutes to download a fact sheet and learn about the month of Ramadan and then see if they need any um, anything during that month to help them because they're getting up at 2.30 in the morning to eat and before sunrise. So it's just like little things like that, that I can continue to learn from other people and really pay attention to their differences. So um, that's a big piece of what I'm doing to learn. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, is as I'm moving through this with leaders, is really paying attention to their reactions. And there are things like embarrassment, there's anger, there's confusion, and they just don't know what to do. To say to a leader, go create an inclusive work environment, where do you even start? Mm -hmm. And so to break it down into some easy steps, that they can actually do feels helpful instead of turning it into an adversarial conversation. Yeah. So that's the learning for me is like one, I just continue to go and read and research, but then really paying attention to what our leaders are going through and listening to them. Great. Thanks for that, Carrie. Uh, such a thoughtful response. So in my work with um, organizations as a coach, I have to deal with people's defensiveness all day. And when we say defensive, it's not coming from a negative place. People aren't coming in with balled up fists saying, I'm not going to change. I'm never going to change. The majority of my work is outside of the diversity and inclusion space. I, of course, I, I am engaged with some of that. And it's mostly supporting work or helping people um, action, create action around um, feedback they've gotten. But I can just say in normal growth professionally, I encounter quite a bit of defensiveness. And what I'm hearing from both of you is that in this space, there's a lot of emotion, excitement, fear, expectation. 
And what I'm really interested in is how do we take organizations and leaders on that journey and keep people intact? So, Carrie, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to throw this question over to you because what you just said is so, so really powerful. How do we take leaders and teams on this journey of creating a more diverse and inclusive uh, workplace and keep people intact and keep organizations intact? So how do we do that? Okay, so how do we take teams and leaders through this journey? Um, so a few things. I think about learning, um, listening, and breaking it down into some easy things that they can do. Mm-hmm. So there is so much resources out there for training. There's companies that come in and, and do training around inclusive leadership or unconscious bias, topics like that. Um, there's also a lot of resources available online. So I think that that's really a critical piece to go through with leaders. I love what Michelle talked about is even having a statement um, from your leaders that's really clear to all employees. Um, The other thing is to just create spaces that people can safely ask questions, listen to each other, uh, provide each other feedback, challenge each other. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. And then to break it down into some easy steps. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, Aram, you talked about my experience with employee engagement. When I started at Colliers in 2010 and we did our first engagement survey, the score was very low. And our goal was to be in best employer. And what didn't work is by me saying to a leader again, can you just go get get your employees engaged? (laughs) And it doesn't mean they don't want to do it. They actually really want to do it. They just don't know how. So um, what I could do is break it down into give them some results, give them uh, three or four things that they can walk away and put into place. And it could be as easy as how to run a meeting to create inclusiveness. Oh, I can actually walk away from that and look at who's invited on a meeting, challenge who's on an agenda. I can make sure I'm going around the table and including everyone. Those are things as a leader like I can actually do. So that feels easier and less um just it doesn't feel as scary Mm -hmm. so i think if you can break it down into things like that Uh, what's interesting to me about that so um going into uh the work that i've done previous to the corporate world uh, which was when i was working as a counselor a lot of change behavior that we would ask people to do whether it was around mental health concerns or addiction concerns was about taking things that seem thematically huge like how do i change my life bringing it down to really actionable steps. That doesn't mean that the emotions removed from it, but it's empowering to people. And it turn it could turn fear into curiosity. Right. Yeah. Um, it could turn resistance into uh, you know, maybe a low a lesser form of resistance or maybe even a little bit of hopefulness. So I really like that. Michelle, what do you think? So what can we do to bring people and organizations on this journey and keep us intact? And by the way, when I say intact, we can anticipate not everyone's going to be down for the journey. Some people may depart or, or may be exited because they can't follow the needs of, of our society and our workforce to be more inclusive, to be more diverse. So when I say intact, it's not about making sure everyone stays, but more so saying, how do we keep people moving down this path? And keep them invested in in wanting to move down this path? Yeah, I think there's two big things that I'm really focused on. 
in helping make all of our teams a more inclusive environment and getting everybody engaged and helping them continue the process. Uh, one of them is, you know, going back to what Carrie said, really trying to find those actionable ways that they could get involved that are not so controversial. Uh, we also have inclusive meeting practices where, you know, we do want to make sure that anybody who's dialing in who isn't in the room, we get their opinion. So often if you're asking questions, we'll make sure to ask them first. That way we all remember that there's somebody on the phone. We also try to use video conferencing as much as possible because then you could actually see the person and have them as involved as you would if they were sitting in the room with you. Mm -hmm. We also try to make sure everything's measurable because especially with our leaders, they love when they actually see results. So if we are just asking a three question survey on a quarterly basis and quarter over quarter, they see that the score is improving. They love that. And once they see that movement Mm -hmm. and then they, I mean, they also know that they could use that in their own performance reviews or promotional documents (laughs) to their boss say, Oh, look at this movement I made. Yeah. They want more. They want to do more. They want it bigger. They want it better. They want more investment into these opportunities. So I think that's really important in creating the culture in the company that supports that. Mm -hmm. Because if you are one leader doing that in a very small team, it's going to be a lot more difficult than you have your entire corporation invested and under the same understanding that this is something that matters. Mm -hmm. Something that we do is we have tenants that Amazon has as a whole, and then each individual organization also creates their own tenants. And we also have our leadership principles. We have diversity and inclusion in those leadership principles and in the tenants. So that way, the whole team knows that this is important as a company. And it's not just, am I doing this because I'm a good person? Right, right. Or because I personally am interested. It's, no, this is a focus of our company. We should all be doing this. Right. And then how you do that, that's where a little more of the nuance comes in. The other thing that I I want to bring up because I found it really effective with conversations with my company and some other companies is going right into the business results. Mm -hmm. There is research that shows that diverse boards have more successful companies. There's research to show that companies that are more diverse have better business results. So if you have a leader who is like, yeah, this sounds great. This is all wonderful and fuzzy and lovely, but I'm not going to focus on this. Mm -hmm. You put the business results in front of them. And that's a lot harder to disagree with because it's research. It's factual information and they're trying to drive their companies. So even if they don't care about diversity, they care about the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And if you could show that the both of those are entwined, you're going to get them on board. All right. So, Michelle, you brought up where we're actually going next and where I have a lot of curiosity. When I talk about diversity and inclusion and when people bring it up to me, I have basically three kinds of conversations. I have the conversation that I'm having with both of you now, which is with professionals who are really well-versed in diversity and inclusion. They can speak about it. They've taken the time to learn and continue to learn about it. And they're ready to be in that actionable space. They're looking to break things down, do it. They're looking at results, like how to get to that space of saying, here's how we act, here are what the results are, here's the information. This is how we make this a real thing. So that's the first kind of conversation. The next kind of conversation I have with professionals is people who actually care about it. They really care about it. Yet they seem to default to, yes, I totally believe in it. I think there's tons of value, but my job 
is about increasing sales in the company, or my job is about IT services, or my job is about accounting. And they focus more on the output of their job because that's what they're evaluated on. And to their uh, stakeholders, that's, that's what matters to them. So when we talk about these things, there is a kind of, yes, of course I care about this. And if it was an easy part of my job that I could take part in, I would do it. I don't know how I would do it in my job today. And the last conversation I have is usually one that's had, you know, over lunch or, you know, in an elevator or in someone's office where they say a big sigh, oh, you know, Aram, yes, of course, I know this stuff is important, but gosh, it's such a big topic right now. And are we going too far? And when is this going to end? And is it like how inclusive is too inclusive? And aren't we just here to do business? And that's the third conversation. And in a lot of ways, that's kind of my favorite conversation because this, the hat that I put on in that space is, well, this person's being vulnerable with me. They're showing me what they really feel. And that's a place where we can create some real change. I'd prefer that someone be honest with me so we can have an honest conversation about it. Yet when I do have that conversation, I always kind of walk away thinking, gosh, we're still here. Like we are still here. There are people in the workplace who are saying, I'm just not really ready. But we're going. We have been going and we are going. So what I'd like to ask um, to both of you, or I'll, I'll throw it out, is we've got these three kinds of conversations. We know how we deal with the first one, which is people who are all in. The second one and the third one, though, we've got the people who are all in, but they don't really view it as being a part of their job. And the last one is people who conceptually say, yeah, we should be diverse. We should be inclusive. But, you know, how much is too much? And it just seems like a lot. How do we move with those people, those two different kinds of uh, audiences? I think moving with the second group of people, the first way to get to them is with the data and make it so it's part of their existing job and we're not adding on top. Mm. I think a lot of times we think about diversity and inclusion as an additional role or as an additional team or an additional document that they need to review. Mm -hmm. Instead, we should really be focusing on how could we just incorporate the diverse cuts of the data into what they're already reviewing. So if they're already looking at how many people on their team got promoted last quarter, how do we then just say, okay, well, how many people by gender and by minority status? Mm -hmm. Let's just start there. And let's look at the numbers. Mm -hmm. Are they fair? Are they even? Mm -hmm. Is it the same with lower level employees or senior level employees? Mm -hmm. If it is, then great. Let's revisit it next year. Make sure we're still equal. If we're not, Maybe this is a problem area that we just identified and we should put some mechanism in place mm -hmm. to try to make this a little better or a little more fair. Mm -hmm. And if we do this with promotions, if we do it with succession planning, if we do it with hires, if we do it with the people exiting the company, then we could actually identify if they have a problem space that maybe they just weren't aware of because yeah. they were just looking at their company saying, all these ladies look, you know, like they're real happy. Yeah. And they're not actually seeing the differences within their own company. Mm -hmm. And I think once we're just putting it in with their other metrics that they're reviewing, right. you know, on a regular cadence mm -hmm. or their talent reviews, even if it's annual, mm -hmm. uh, then it makes it a little easier of a conversation because you're not adding to. Mm -hmm. You're just taking what they already have and just showing the differences and identifying potential problem areas. 
Yeah, it's interesting that you said that adding to because that that's a space where I hear a lot of and I, I, I think we should name it resistance, not resistance to the concepts or the ideas of diversity and inclusion, but resistance to having to do one extra thing in their day or having to plan out their conversations in advance or being thoughtful with a lot of, oh, you know, my job isn't this, my job is this. And, and I like how you're saying this, this is about not adding on. It's about looking at existing process and refining that so that it is more inclusive and it does actually reflect more diverse, um, a space for more diversity. So it's not adding more, it's about making what you do better and stronger and more focused. Talk about that third conversation, Carrie. I'm going to throw this one over to you. What about the resistors? And I want to be really clear here. I don't want to vilify people. Um, you know, we live in a society where people have all sorts of different life experiences, and I don't know why someone might react a certain way to ideas. And we are in a workplace where I want to reduce fear. I want to, and I think we all want that. We want to reduce fear. And hey, we're changing. We're going there. So. We have to anticipate there is some fear, there is some resistance, there is some pushback. So how do we deal with that third conversation of the leader who is like, oh, gosh, like, when is this going to end? How are we going to, you know, are we going too far? Like, is everyone, you know, like, do we have to take care of everyone's every little thing? How do we deal with that? Yeah, so how do we deal with that leader that resists? So I love that Michelle started with the metrics and the data. I think that's really important because it opens the conversation but then I like to present what people are actually saying yeah. because that hits you, that hits you in the gut when you actually hear it. And I, I know I've talked about employee engagement a lot, but engagement and inclusion are, are together. And so yeah. that's a lot, I've done a lot of work in that space. And uh, at Colliers, we do an engagement survey every year and we get great data, but the data doesn't give you the what the why behind it. Yeah. And so there's a lot of excuses that people can have just looking at the data. So for instance, well, we don't have more women in broker positions because it's 100% commission. Mm -hmm. That's what a leader, I can easily, well, the reason we don't have as many brokers as females is because it's 100% commission. It doesn't work for them. Mm -hmm. But if we do a focus group and have conversations with people and really find out what the why is behind the data, what they'll learn is it's actually something very different. Oh, right, right. It has nothing to do with maybe a few people because it's 100% commission, right. but there's actually much more behind that. Right. And so that's where I have found it helpful is get the data, do some focus groups in a safe space mm -hmm. with a diverse set of people, get that information and put it into themes and present that back to a leader so that they can hear what people are saying. Mm -hmm that creates some huge aha moments for a leader. Right. And, you know, it's really interesting. I'm hearing from both of you that, you know, it's setting off all sorts of things in my head is that um, when I worked in the social services area, uh, if we were talking about things about, let's say, mental health or addiction and, and the ways that we would talk about things, sometimes um, if we were dealing with people who weren't used to that kind of language, they'd be like, oh, gosh, you guys are very peaceful kind group of people you know you're you're very um you know sometimes they throw around around terms like oh you're you're just you're so gentle or you're you're, you're so compassionate but there was almost like a an underlying well you're not like real business people you know like you're you're those caretaker people over there and you know growing up in the punk scene i'd be like you know 
who are you to talk to me like that? And it's interesting because as you're talking, I was like, yeah, that's that's it. When we're in the business world and we are talking about things like diversity and inclusion, there can be this little bit of an attitude. It's like, well, you know, all hand-holding and kind and everything, but we're business people. Like we need to focus on business. And what both of you are saying is, yes, we are going to focus on the business. Here's the numbers and uh, not just the numbers. Here's actually all of the, the reasons why these numbers are being driven that way. This is what people actually think. This is actually about creating raw data and um, getting access to real thinking that helps create real change within a business. What the two of you just said was some of the most, I think most, well, I believe to be the most thoughtful business responses. And when presented with those things, I'm very interested in how leaders could look at that and be like, oh, that's not business because that's just pure business. I love it. That's great. Because I want to take this conversation away from being like, oh, you're just the caretaking, lovely people. Well, yes, that's true. And none of that's bad. And we're also business people. Because we want the best people to work here. And the only way you get the best people is if you come from a diverse space. Michelle, you look like you got something to say there. Yeah, there's something else when we're talking about getting across to business leaders why diversity is important. That has been really effective for me. And that is the next step as to, yes, we need to have a diverse team. Why? And then looking at how that leads to business solutions. So I work at Amazon. So we are selling things to a diverse customer set online. We need to have our business be as diverse as our customer base, because if it's not, they're going to miss things when we're rolling out products. So for example, when we are doing things like updating our search results, if you type in foundation, the foundations that come up in the images are all light colored foundations right right because the people who are on those teams never even noticed that they were making sure that there is a picture the price is correct the shipping information is correct the title is correct none of them ever even thought like oh maybe we should have multiple colors of foundation posted Mm -hmm. the moment you have a diverse team they're going to notice that and they're going to notice it before it's live and in front of the customer Mm -hmm. That's why you need diverse teams. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's the right thing to do. And we want to make sure our employees are happy. Mm-hmm. But you're going to make better business decisions if you have a diverse team. They're going to catch things before they go live to your customer mm-hmm. before they normally would. Mm-hmm. Or they'd be able to make that correction or update the UX of it or update the UI of it to make sure that it actually works for the entire customer base. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, what's interesting to that is, so we can say 100% on one hand, this is the right thing to do. And everyone in the company could be like, yes, it's the right thing to do. We believe in this is the right thing to do. And then, you know, we leave the meeting or whatever it is. And then we go back to kind of same, same. Things go along the same way. And what is interesting for me is I would suggest for most engagements that I've had with people, most people are going to say it's the right thing to do. Absolutely. What I'm interested in is the disconnect between this is the right thing to do and then in that moment of truth, let's say there's been a complaint or there's been a difficulty or we'll get back to business as usual. What's that disconnect between that resolute feeling we have? This is the right thing to do. And I do believe companies and people in companies feel that to action. What's the disconnect between that? Carrie, what are your thoughts? 
So my experience and what that disconnect is, if I understand the question correctly, is I'm going to have to going to have to change something I'm going to have to ask some other people to change something and that's scary to do does that yeah make sense that makes perfect sense that's a great answer where do you think that fear comes from I've been doing it for this long um what if I lose friendships or credibility what if the team that I've had with me doesn't support me anymore? I think all of those types of things go through a leader's head. Yeah. Some of the real basic stuff that we can even go back all the way to our childhood about. Sense of security. Yeah. Am I going to be within group? Um, will I have, and when I say power, I don't mean like authority, but will I have um, social power? Um, will people still respect me? Am I losing something? Do I, by giving someone something, do I have to give something up? This sounds like some of the things that might be playing in the psychology of that. Yeah, absolutely. So, for instance, I spoke a little bit before that in some ways, um, like we have most of our brokers are men. And so in some ways it's easier to say it's because it's 100% commission and women like more security. Right, right. Because we could actually fix that. But what if it's that we should stop doing some activities mm -hmm. that are much more geared towards men? And it could be going out after work and drinking mm -hmm. or these types of things. That's, that's hard. Yeah. I could actually change a compensation structure and get my HR team to help me change a compensation structure. But now I have to maybe change the way we're socially interacting with people. Yeah. And there's a cost to that for a lot of people. Yeah. It's like, um, so one of the things I've seen uh, when I work across companies is if a leader does make those changes. So I, I, like I said, it's like, it's easier to make structural changes. Oh, we'll compensate differently or we'll do this or we'll do that. And those are good changes to make. Certainly we don't want to take away from that. But some of the socializing changes that people have to make, a lot of fear, like, and if I'm going to boil it down, how am I going to look to my boys? How am I, am I going to look like, um, am I uh, a turncoat to the group? Have I, you know, have I become one of them or are people going to make fun of me behind the scenes? And my sense is that a lot of this, and we could call it like, you know, juvenile behavior, but I, I, I want to actually take that away as well. Human beings have a deep need to be safe and that is woven into our psychology. We need to be safe. And there is a great sense around change that if I embrace change or if I am as seen as someone who is trying to change things in a group that have been kind of the traditional, like that's how it's done, I actually might lose my safety in that group. I might be the person that sucks. I might be the, the traitor. I might be the loser. I might actually totally end up getting flushed out of this group and leave in disgrace because I was trying to do the right thing. And I have a real sense that that keeps a lot of the most negative behaviors um, in our society alive is that real base fear of needing to be accepted and, and be safe. Um, so Michelle, you brought up something I want to crack into. Um, and I, I was really interesting when you talked about the foundation, you know, like people are taking photos of foundation, like of a product they're going to put online and they wouldn't even think, oh, I, I mean, basically this only works for a certain kind of skin tone. They wouldn't think of it because the team's not diverse. So I want to talk about unconscious bias. So 
would either one of you feel comfortable telling us what unconscious bias is? Unconscious bias in the work environment is primarily those biases held by us as people, as human beings, that might be stereotypes or they might be uh, other ways that we have used our brain to shortcut information, which is the use of our brains. You know, this is something that we as humans have were evolved to do. But in using them unconsciously, we are then making decisions with a bias that we don't know that we have, yeah. which makes it more difficult because people, you know, especially in the work environment, don't think that they have a bias towards something or against something, mm -hmm. which is what makes it unconscious. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and this yeah. is like super interesting. And I, I love the foundation example you gave because let's say someone is sitting down to, to take photos of a product and they go to that. They're not, you know, I would say for the vast majority of people, they aren't like twisting their curly mustache like, <laughs> I can't wait to just do this. <laughs> they just do it. They're not even realizing that they're operating on it. And if it was put in front of them, there might be a defensive reaction like, oh, gosh, are you saying something about what I believe? And going to what you said, it's because it's unconscious. So this is an interesting one. How do we get people to recognize their conscious and unconscious biases? and alter that or work with that in the workspace? Um, so the best way to do it is through taking tests and training. Mm -hmm. So there is, I think it's the implicit bias test that Harvard gets online. I mean, you, they've got a whole bunch of different tests that you go on and take and you learn a lot about what your biases are. Mm -hmm. So I think people, sh it's very easy for people to go and do. And then there's just online courses to take and companies that come in and do this training. I think that is the best way to do it. Yeah. Once you do that, then you just really start to pay attention to it. It's amazing what you become aware of with other people once you go through that in yourselves and then ask for feedback. Mm -hmm. That's what I find the best way to do it. Okay, and I like that piece. Um, uh, awareness is what create is the first step of creating change. And I do encourage uh, for our audience here, the majority of the work that I do with people is about um, first about your mindset and creating awareness of how you think and how you view things. When you're creating change, it's not the only step, but I'll tell you that you could go out and learn tons of stuff. You could learn tons of skills, but unless you have a mindset that is like of that of increased awareness, if you go out and learn things and practice things, unless you understand the deep reason why you're doing it, you're not going to, you're not going to create some kind of big fundamental change in your approach. Awareness is a, the absolute first step. So, okay, that's great. We've got, We've got a way that we can do that is like go and take some of these assessments and really increase your awareness. Michelle, what do you think? I think taking the tests are a great way to start. I will also throw on the table GlobeSmart mm -hmm. is a really great one, especially if you have multicultural teams or teams just spread out across the globe. Um, and then leanin.org also put out a new board game style or card game style uh, unconscious bias test, which makes it a little more fun, uh -huh. a little less intimidating. So that's another good one to, to do as well. In addition to that, I think having those good conversations with a small group of people at a round table, especially a diverse group of people, are really good ways when people are talking about the ways that they've seen bias to them, that you then realize that you might have done that yourself, mm. maybe not to them, but yeah. to somebody else or you didn't even realize it was 
a bias and it makes you more aware of it. So I think that's another really good way of just acknowledging what those are. Mm -hmm. And to Carrie's point, once you realize what they are, Mm -hmm. it kind of snowballs. You start paying attention to it more. You see it more in your day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. And once you start recognizing those, uh, you know, you'll see it in other places and in other ways and shapes and forms. And being a really vulnerable leader, Mm -hmm. which is so important, it's great when you do it, you acknowledge it. And you try to correct it and let your team know, like, I didn't even realize we were picking the wrong color foundation. Mm-hmm. I am so sorry. Mm-hmm. On the next sprint, let's figure out the best way to get multiple colors of foundation into search results. Yeah. So you have to get in there first as soon as you acknowledge it, mm-hmm. apologize, go fix it. Mm-hmm. And the more you do that, the more your team knows that they have the permission to do that as well. They have the permission to make mistakes and acknowledge those mm-hmm. and be able to fix those biases as they come up. So I, I want to really focus on something you said there, um, acknowledgement and correction. And, and we'll add in permission as well. So a big part of change from what I'm hearing is acknowledging like, wow, I've learned something. I've got this awareness holy mackerel, I've just learned this thing and acknowledging what you've learned and then making that change and being visible about it, being out there. And I like you, you used the word vulnerable, but also by doing that, you're telling other people, it's okay if you made a mistake, but what's not okay is continuing just to make that same mistake. It's okay to make a mistake, acknowledge it and change it. Is that correct? That's correct. Because if it's an unconscious bias, you did it unconsciously. You didn't do it purposely, and now you're making the action to fix it. If the bias is now conscious and you continue to do it, you're just a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) So if something has moved from unconscious to conscious, you weren't aware before, but then you've learned it, but then you just continue to do it. That's when we get to the problematic stuff. Exactly. All right. So now we've been talking about the kind of person who's like, Yes, like I've learned something. Thank you so much. Or maybe they maybe they weren't even excited about it. Maybe they were mortified, but they were like, "Oh, I've learned. They've acknowledged. I'm I'm going to do this moving forward." And by doing that, it should create a ripple effect of change. What about how do we as leaders, how do we as people in the workforce, how do we manage the fear, the anger and the resistance? that comes with creating a more diverse and inclusive workplace? I'm going to start by saying the way that we need to manage the fear in creating a diverse workspace is to create the culture first, the culture that you are allowed to change, that you are allowed to make mistakes, and that it is important to the company. Mm -hmm. So I think going back to what I said earlier about tenants, or having leadership principles like Amazon does, Mm -hmm. that very specifically state we want diverse perspectives to disconfirm our beliefs. You have that as, as the soft place to fall. Because if you do make a mistake in the company, you could point back to that leadership principle or to that tenant and say, this is what we do as a company. We do tough things. We acknowledge them when they happen. I'm sorry. And let's be able to find a way to do this better moving forward. So there's there's already a foundation baked in for people to be able to refer back and go, oh, now I can just look back to that and say, I need to do this. It makes sense. I've got it. Exactly. Okay. And if you know that it's expected of you, 
as an employee of that company, mm-hmm. it's still difficult. To your point, like these are baked in issues that we have growing up mm-hmm. within our society. Mm-hmm. But at least your company acknowledges it, so you know that you will not be fired. You will still get your promotion or get your bonus at the end of the day. It's not going to be held against you mm-hmm. because this is expected from a company perspective mm-hmm. that these things are going to come up and we're encouraging people to explore that. Could I weigh in on that before we go on? And this goes, carry to something that you'd said right in the very beginning is making things actionable, right? So by having something like that baked in and saying like, actually, no, like this is, this is just a baked in tenant that we have. We expect people are going to make mistakes. If you make a mistake, you've, you've been actually given a gift because you've had a learning opportunity. Now you can correct it. This is how you can correct it, how you address it, uh, acknowledge it, address it, and move forward. So that's Gary. One of the first things he said was making things actionable. And unless we make this stuff actionable, then it just it stays in the space of good intentions and big ideas. All right. So that's the first part around addressing the fear. You said like let's create the right culture, and that culture should be. Oh, we're going to calm the fear. It's okay to make mistakes, but what's not okay is to keep making the same mistake over and over again. What else? How do we manage, you know, the anger and the resistance and those types of things? I think when we need to manage the anger and resistance, we're getting into individual people and how they are perceiving these and how they are resisting them. Resistance comes in many different forms and every different leader is going to have their own different resistance to an idea. It could come from the perspective of we're already doing so much. I don't need to do anymore. Mm -hmm. That's going to be a really different conversation with that type of leader as opposed to a leader that says, this just isn't important and I don't care. So I think the person who's having that conversation, you know, be it, are you the leader of the company? Are you an employee at the company trying to manage up? Are you working in HR? Are you working in recruiting? You know, depending on your perspective and that conversation you have to have with the leader, it is going to be a little more one-on-one and trying to address what is that underlying fear that they have or that anger that they have towards it. And what's their background? Do they come from a different country and they just honestly don't understand the nuances of American or Canadian culture Mm -hmm. that, you know, racial issues still exist? Mm -hmm because in school they weren't taught those things or are you coming from a perspective that you know maybe it's somebody who's uh you know came up from texas Mm -hmm. to seattle for existence Mm -hmm. they're going to have a really different cultural background that you're going to have to speak to to try to get them to weigh in and and get their buy-in if they do have this anger and resentment towards Mm -hmm. the issue so your response then would be like go in yeah have the discussions Okay, Kara, I, I want to take it over to you. Um, what, like, what are your thoughts on managing the fear or the anger or the resistance? And to put it on the table, all three of us have seen fear, real fear about this stuff, but deep anger. Like, I don't want to change. I don't want this thing. Is this too far? And then, of course, resistance, whether resistance is clear and aggressive or passive aggressive. So, Carrie, what are your thoughts on managing that fear, uh, anger, and resistance? Yeah, so in managing the fear. So I agree with Michelle that it it does work to have more individual conversations or discussions to find out, you know, dig into what's behind that fear and if it's something that we can help identify and move forward with. 
Um, I will tell you for myself, something that's been really important is just having the courage to stay strong in the conversations though also. Um, I think a lot of people can back down from that. And it's been, how do I keep the discussions going with this person so that they don't turn it adversarial? And it is like seeking to understand and but staying really firm in my voice and opinion on it. Also finding other allies within the company too that may come at it from a different point of view that might be better to talk to that person. But also maybe they're just not right to stay in the organization. Yeah, I think at some point that's the next, um, the last kind of change that I think organizations should hopefully have the courage to make that. Because one or two people can have a really big impact on a lot of people. Yeah, 100%. That leads me to my next question. Well, the next two questions I want to ask. Um, I can't think of a company that I know that doesn't have some kind of diversity inclusion conversation at least happening. So we know lots of good stuff is happening. And I also hear a lot of rumblings in different companies that yeah, they talk the talk, you know, it's this, this, this talk, but they don't really mean it. Everything's the same. So how do we challenge that idea that companies are just doing this as a marketing gig, that they're just doing this as a, oh, us too, we also have that. How do we challenge? And this is going to be part one of a two-part question. Let's stick with this one first. How do we challenge the idea that this is just a thing that all companies are doing because it's, you know, the time and everyone's got to do it. How do we challenge that internally within companies? I'll start by saying, I think for some companies, that is it. Mm -hmm. Some companies are doing it as a marketing or advertising mechanism. Yeah. Um, so for them, you know, best wishes, you probably won't be around very long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, let's just be honest. So for the companies where the employees or other people perceive it as a marketing ploy, but mm -hmm. it isn't. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's where the employees, be it HR, recruiting, leadership, could really dig in and say, it's not good intentions. We have mechanisms. These are the mechanisms, or these are the goals. These are the things we're making changes to. Mm -hmm. And being open and honest about those things, be it internally with the company or publicly. I think when you actually see and hear specifically what those actions are that are being taken, you realize all of a sudden that this is not a marketing ploy. Mm -hmm. This isn't them just slapping their name on a big diversity conference because they could and they have money. They're actually making changes. Mm -hmm. And I do understand the difficulty with confidential data. This is a problem that Amazon has and a lot of the other big tech companies have. We can't say specifically, you know, we have goals around hiring or something like that. Mm -hmm. But we could say, this is what our workforce currently looks like. And these are the changes we're making to it. This is what our pay equity number is. All of that stuff is public. You can go look it up online. And I think a lot of other companies now are being open and honest about that. And those are the companies who are really taking this seriously. Okay, great. Uh, Carrie, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with Michelle that actions speak louder than words, and that's what employees are going to want to see. Okay, so what are you doing? And then they'll start to see the results of that. 
But um, for me as an HR leader, I find with a lot of things that we work on is I don't always want it to just, I don't want it to be seen as just an HR thing. Yeah. So um, in, in a lot of the initiatives that I might be leading, I'm kind of secretly leading them. Right. So <laughs> right. I, it's really um, getting allies out in the business. So mm. a, a big thing for me is getting male allies or leadership allies to help with um, this initiative specifically. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's really important for us. So uh, two things I heard here was really show people what you're doing. Don't have it as a script going in the background. Talk about it up front. Keep that alive for people so they they can see it so it's not just our name on a conference or this meeting we have once a year but you're actually bringing those things forward and you're talking about it and you're being visible with it oh yeah i love that the other side um carrie that uh, you're hearing is that like actions talk too though it's that going out and getting supporters getting allies getting them in the mix and you've mentioned the word ally a bit and i want to circle back to that in, in a few moments but I love the idea of saying, well, I'm not going to wait for people to come to me and say, oh, wow, I want to be a part of this. And it's great when people do that, but actually saying, I know I can't do this on my own. And I know there might be some fear. There might be some resistance. There might be some misunderstanding. So I'm going to go out and build those bridges and get those people. So that sounds like part of it too. Yes, it is a big part of it. Okay. Yeah. So this brings me to the second part of this question. Okay. So we know that some people are going to be like, oh, just like a marketing thing and whatever. And I want to say, bring it on, bring those things on. And I'm going to tell you exactly what we do. And I'm going to make you an ally. I'm going to get out. I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to open up your mind. What do we do to help companies make good on the promise though? So when some companies do slap their name on a, on a thing, or some companies do make all these big proclamations, but then it's just back to business as usual and people are doing exactly what they do and you go into the office and everyone looks exactly the same and, you know, traditional types of people are in traditional types of jobs and we just spent all of this money and did all of this well-wishing around this idea and literally nothing changed. How do we help the company make good on that? And I don't just mean us three here. I mean the people in the C-suite all the way to the front line. How do we help our companies make good on that? I think one thing that has been effective at Amazon, which doesn't apply for all companies, but for all publicly traded companies, if you are a shareholder or you know a shareholder, you could put forth statements for the annual shareholder meeting to say that I want to see this change take place. Two years ago, somebody did that to the Amazon board saying, we need to see a more diverse board. Amazon responded with a more diverse board. Our board is now 42% female, mm -hmm. which is one of the most diverse boards in the Fortune 500, mm -hmm. which is great. But the shareholders have power to do that. Yeah. Where, and if, you know, if it's a non-publicly traded company, you really need to focus on your internal employees. Yeah, right. to, because if you have that mass of people who are demanding changes, even if the C-suite is saying, no, I don't know, maybe if you have all of the employees coming up and saying like, no, 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 we really need to see action on this, mm -hmm. they will start paying attention when you have that, you know, group of people making those demands rather than one lonely voice in the crowd. Okay. So um, that's know your rights, know your power, and then like lean into it. Make sure that, that you're taking the right channels that are going to get the right kind of attention and stay with it. 
Absolutely. And making it actionable as well, because mm -hmm. if you just say, yeah, I'd love to see a more inclusive company, that's really vague to tell a C-suite member. Mm -hmm. But if you say very specifically, I want to see our recruiting efforts changed and I want us to focus on historically black colleges or women universities, mm -hmm. that is something that's a lot more actionable to them mm -hmm. than making broad sweeping statements that they might feel overwhelmed or they don't even know where to start or what you personally are passionate about as to why you brought that up. And it's a lot easier to ignore a sweeping statement than a precise statement that's backed with data and, and specifics. Exactly. Yeah. Because if you say, we've been so focused on just doing our recruiting initiatives based off of referrals, if we're doing referrals and they're based off of the current employees, most likely their circle of friends look like them. Right. How do we make this a more diverse company? Let's focus recruiting efforts on these other universities. Okay. It gives them something specific to say, yeah, recruiting, why aren't we focusing on these universities? <laughs> then recruiting's like, got it, I'm yeah. on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool, I, I really like that. Kara, what are your thoughts? How do we how do we help our companies make good on their, their promises around diversity and inclusion? Yeah, I think making declarations on a few actions, mm -hmm. um, finding leaders that are really passionate about those, find those people to lead some of that stuff, mm -hmm. and then get employees behind it. So that the, it's built not just all in one department or that it doesn't live with one person, but you actually get groups of people, sort of leadership and employees working on these specific initiatives. I think that's a really effective way to move things forward. Okay, great. Um, so that's going to bring me to, to a question that is very big in um, hiring practices. So uh, one of the things that um, I think we all hear about is unqualified preferential treatment. Um, with the rise of, of discussion about diversity and inclusion, there seems to almost be an equal rise and just uncomfortable rise in the, oh, are we just going to hire people based on how they look? Or are we going to base, uh, based on what their ethnic background is or based on what their gender is? And the funny thing is, well, yeah, we've been doing that forever. We've been hiring from a primarily white male background. So the answer is yes, that's actually what has been happening, and we want to change that. The interesting thing, though, is that when we talk about hiring practices, that's where a lot of pushback comes. So a question that I have, again, for either one of you is, what are some of the base-level practices that support hiring, development, and promotion of diverse talent without falling into any kind of unqualified preferential treatment that other people might assume that would be out there? I think one of the ways that we could really focus on having more diverse hiring and promoting people, but without having any preferential treatment, is by making the playing field clear at the very beginning before you start the hiring. So focusing on hiring for a second, when we have job descriptions, do all of the interviewers know what that job description is that they are doing the interview for? Are the group of people that are interviewing this candidate diverse? Do they know what the priorities are for the hiring manager? And if you spell that all out in the beginning, you also solidify what the primary interview questions are and you repeat them to every single candidate, you're going to have a more fair playing field just with that because studies have shown that interviewers will interview both a female and a male candidate for the same position and they might have the same background 
but if the male candidate might not fulfill all the necessary requirements, but they have a real go-getter attitude, all of a sudden, go-getter attitude becomes the number one priority for that hiring manager. But if you spell it out before the interviews start and you keep everybody accountable to that, then it's a lot more fair when you're reviewing the feedback after the interviews to say, okay, we all agreed these were the priorities. We all agreed this is what the requirements were for the job. Who fit those? Mm -hmm. And if we're using the same interview questions across the board, mm -hmm. then it's going to be a little more based on facts and how those people responded to those questions rather than... I really liked that guy. He had a good handshake. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's real interesting because, um, again, the way that I do counter a lot of this is, well, we're already doing uh, preferential treatment in our hiring. We are actually already hiring based on how people look and what their gender is. To be able to change that, it sounds like, Michelle, your first piece of advice around hiring specifically is have a complete roadmap, set expectations and accountability. What are the actual things we're looking for, even a go-getter attitude? And we put that in the actual job description. Like uh, we give anyone who'd be coming up as a candidate all of the information that they would need in advance so that the expectation is if you have these, if you can demonstrate these, if these are real for you, then everyone will get the equal level of, um, of consideration. Exactly. And uh, having that conversation with the interviewers as mm, well, yeah. because you might look at the job description and might have 50 things in it. Right. But if you say... These are deal breakers. This is, you know, something I really, really want, but might not be 100% necessary. And these other things are just nice to haves. Yeah. Then all of the interviewers know. And then when they give you their feedback, if they go, yeah, go get her attitude. You're like, well, that was one of my nice to haves, but not one of the must haves. But this other candidate had, you know, technical skill set that I was actually looking for. Right, right, right. And I say, oh, right. Yeah. Maybe her handshake wasn't as good, but she actually has the technical skills. Yeah. She probably deserves the job. Yeah. Um, I was just talking about this morning how um, a lot of charisma and a good way of with words can talk you into a lot of positions that you, <laughs> you probably shouldn't have. So that's that's like really good feedback. Carrie, what, what are your thoughts on hiring? Yeah. To me, it's all around clarity and consistency. Yeah. If you can, if every candidate meets the same people goes through the same process, has the same technical test if they're going through it. Each person maybe is told which interview questions or which areas to focus on. Then um, you can explain why that person was hired. And it was, everyone's gone through the exact same process. Yeah. So to me, it's clarity and consistency. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, is there anything else we want to add, in, uh, add into this around like you know promotion or anything else? I think it's the same thing. It, like it's really important that an HR team or a leadership team looks at all of their internal processes and one, are there processes, are there things that you can remove some of the biases in there? Like look at the language in your job description or how is it that you make a promotion decision? So redo that and then make it consistent. If you ask an employee on your team, how does the promotion work process work here? They should be able to answer that because it's clear and consistent and it's seen as fair. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, so I want to go to the conversation about allies. And uh, we hear a lot of this language around diversity and inclusion. And first of all, let's tell people what it actually means. So, um, you know, Carrie, you've brought it up a number of times. I'd like to actually ask both of you. So Carrie, for you, what does it mean to be an ally in the workplace? 
So being an ally in the workplace to me means being aware of what's happening in the space of diversity inclusion and speaking up and helping other people um, when you see something that isn't right around the diversity inclusion space. Michelle, anything you'd add to that? Uh, I think the way that we really look at allies are, uh, to Carrie's point, the people who are aware and will speak up. Mm -hmm. Um, And for us, it's a lot of our leadership because those are the people who could actually make actionable changes and lead conversations, lead initiatives, hire headcount specifically for these purposes. Um, you know, thank you for clarifying that. So being an ally in the workplace is incredibly important. And so when we say uh, being an ally, it's not just about being someone who supports women in the workplace or women in leadership. It's not just about supporting people who are from the LGBTQ community. It's not just about supporting uh, people who have different levels of ability. It's really saying, I am game to support this organization and the people in it in being able to truly bring their whole selves into this company, be who they are, and feel like they can be a part of it. That's a big job. So just because someone desires to be an ally or has identified themselves as an ally doesn't mean that they're skilled at it. And this is a place where we want to encourage people to get skilled. Um, and really, as clear as an example, when I was a, a young therapist, I could have told you like, oh, you know, I believe in this, I believe in that. But I probably wasn't, well, not probably, factually was not a skilled ally. I didn't have the experience or the understanding that I needed at the time. And I had to grow and learn from it. So what are the skills of a strong ally? What are the the ways that they approach conversations? Or what are the things that someone who's a very skilled ally would do in the workplace? I think the first place where I feel that allies often misstep and you could really see somebody who is very skilled at this is that they give the conversation back to that person or to that group of people that is, you know, either in question or concerns are being raised around. Um, When allies notice something in a room, so say we're at a conference room table, there's one woman in the room and she keeps being interrupted. The ally could say, hey, let's take it back to what Carrie was saying and gives Carrie the voice. Mm -hmm. On a larger level, often we'll see people who are legitimately allies, but they want to speak. They want to speak for that underserved group. Right. And they say, no, this is the issue. This is what we need to be doing rather than giving the voice back to the person that needs the voice. Yeah. So uh, one of the things I'm hearing there is don't take up space. Correct. Give the space to the person who needs the space, <laughs> right, not <totally>. you. <laughs> like, so you've got a good intent, like, hey, I want to help. But instead of taking up lots of space with that intent, it's about doing the right measures to to give that space back to the the groups that should be speaking. Exactly. Okay. And also making it as unawkward as possible. Because there have been so many times where I've been in a conference room where I've been spoken over and I've had an ally interrupt to try to give me the floor space again. But the way it's done makes it just awkward for me and everybody in the room involved. So I think a really skilled ally 
knows those great ways of saying things or phrasing things. Mm -hmm. So nobody's put on the spot. Mm -hmm. Nobody feels angry or defensive. Mm -hmm. But you also get the point across. Okay, cool. Carrie? So I just read a book that everybody should read. It's called Better Allies. And in the book, they talk about being an ally versus a knight. And so a knight will just speak up and try to save the day or save the person. But an ally will do it in a way that Michelle just described, but also take it one step further. And for instance, if they notice that women are constantly interrupted in the company, then they would find a way to... Um, change what's happening within the company. They actually try to fix the systemic issue mm -hmm. instead of just calling it out. But I do want to say something else is that actually sometimes I do think it's appropriate to make it awkward. Mm -hmm. When uh, somebody says something sexist or hits on somebody, you know what? I'm okay to make it awkward yeah. because they've just made it really awkward and that person doesn't necessarily know and um, how to handle it. So Sometimes it's okay to say, yeah, we don't, we don't do that here. Or even just say, that was awkward. Yeah. And that can instantly shut something down. I think that's on a more extreme case when somebody says something mm -hmm. really sexist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's not caretaking other people's bad behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Why? I, you know, because there's, there's both, right? We don't need to unnecessarily blow people up for a simple slip or something that they might not be understanding. But on the flip side, we don't want to caretake ridiculous behavior. So for example, if someone said something that was racist, yeah, we can definitely yeah. make sure that they feel now feel as awkward as they just made everyone else feel. And then in our own way, really put that back in their own face. Yeah. Okay. And, and you know, one of the things I encourage you here for listeners at that part, people might be like, Good gosh, <laughs> I can't believe what they're saying. I just want to encourage you here. Um, there's a way of reflecting people's comments back at them in a way. Uh, Carrie, I love what you just said. Oh, no, we don't do that here. That says a lot. Or, wow, it was really awkward to hit on a coworker like that. Yeah. You don't have to take it a step further, but you also don't have to tap dance around someone else's poor behavior. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Lots of, lots of nodding going on yes, around this. <laughs> I'm enjoying this. All right. Um, I want to crack into something that I brought up in the beginning of our conversation. So we're three people sitting around a table with two other people that are, that are helping us. Um, you know, we've got one person doing the sound, one who's helping facilitate the day. Everyone sitting at the table is Caucasian. Mm -hmm. We come from a group there. We all look alike. And uh, I won't go further into our different backgrounds or any of those things. I will say that this conversation is amongst many diversity and inclusion conversations that I've had where the group in and of itself was not very diverse. So I've got a variety of questions I want to ask about this. But this reflection, I want to just hand it over to both of you and see if there's anything you'd like to say about that. Yeah, I, I can add to that. So um, I think it's really important to recognize the space that I'm comfortable in speaking with, which is more around gender diversity, mm -hmm. but also recognize my space in the area of privilege. Right. There's lots of things that make me privileged yeah. and it is the color of my skin and I'm able-bodied and straight. And all so I think it's really important to just call that out and say that, that um, I'm not an expert in those spaces, but I wanna learn. Um, and so that's an area that I see people they're defensive with that word privilege, but yeah. you can be both. Yeah. I'm actually privileged, but I also come from a space of like, I've also been disadvantaged um, with being a female. Yeah. 
Michelle? Yeah, something else I want to acknowledge on this topic is within our conversation, we've also been talking about gender. Mm -hmm. And then we will say male or female. Gender is a spectrum. And I think we all here acknowledge it, but I want to make sure that it's heard, that we all know that gender is a spectrum. Mm -hmm. When it comes to a lot of research, research is typically done with traditionally female and traditionally male participants. Right. Mm -hmm. So when we are looking at research or numbers or the way things are tracked, sometimes it comes off that way, and that's why we speak to it in that sense. But it does not mean that we are not acknowledging the spectrum of gender mm-hmm. and all of what it accompanies in addition to race, LGBT status, intersectionality. There's a lot of nuances to this conversation mm-hmm. that I think I want to make sure that everybody knows that we are acknowledging those people and we want those people as part of this conversation as well. Yeah. To your point, us sitting around at this table do not fit that. Yeah. But we are thinking about that and acknowledging that in our practices and in our works and all of these examples that we've been giving today. Yeah. So this becomes the tougher part. We reflect a very small part of the diversity world that we're talking about. In fact, me being the person speaking right now, I come from a very traditional background. I am a white male. I'm straight. I grew up in a, um, uh, I grew up in Calgary in a nice neighborhood. I went to university, well-educated. I speak one language, which is English. I come from a very, very teeny space. However, I absolutely cannot shirk my responsibility to be involved in these conversations. And it, I believe every person is responsible to be involved in these conversations, even if you're just there primarily as a listener and, and someone who's there to learn. So how can we, groups of people who don't reflect a lot of diversity, how can we have these conversations in a way that's progressive and, and matters and, and is healthy? What can we do to be in that space? If we don't have um, a lot of people in the mix with us who come from diverse backgrounds, let's say it's something we're working towards, how do we have those conversations in a way that's progressive and open and actually does move the needle? I think what you actually did is the best first step and just the acknowledgement of this is where I'm coming from. This is the background that I have. So this is the perspective I have. And I acknowledge that I am not going to be the best person to speak to you X, Y, and Z. That being said, let's talk about X, Y, and Z. And if I make a misstep, let me know. Mm-hmm. And if I could do better, let me know. But let's have a conversation about this so we can make this a better place. So, you know, if this was a work environment, I would want all of my leaders to acknowledge that first mm-hmm. before we dug into the conversation of recruiting or promotions or how do we make better business decisions? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the first thing is just saying it, acknowledging it. And then if there are any actions you could do right then and there to make this better, say, hey, looking around at us, is there somebody else we should have invited today? Mm-hmm. Does anybody know anybody else with more diverse perspectives that we could have invited today? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Let's have them in the next one. Okay. Or let's get them in here now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Carrie? Yeah, I agree. Acknowledgement is the is the first thing. And then it is expanding your networks so many times we talk about it but what are we actually doing to go and expand our networks and it is a pretty easy thing to go and do so um that would be the second thing okay could i get some examples of expanding your networks like what would that look like for an average work person 
um, even within work, is going and talking to other people that you wouldn't normally talk to with underrepresented groups. Mm -hmm. um, it could be going, if there's employee res resource groups at work, is even being a part of those conversations. Mm -hmm. And then there's other networks outside that you can, you can go and be a part of. Okay, great. Yeah. So um, we're heading towards the end of the conversation now. We've got about 10 minutes left, and uh, we're still going to come with some tough questions. So how do we avoid tokenism in the workplace? Yeah, tokenism is a big issue across the board in, uh, at Amazon and at a lot of other companies because when you only have a certain amount of employees that fit your definition of diversity, you want them to speak at events. You want them to handle the interviews. You want them to go to conferences and be the representation for their whole group. So right there, we have a whole issue that we don't want one person speaking for their whole nationality or their whole gender because they do not represent their whole gender. They are their own person and they have their own thoughts and responsibilities. And, and that's what uh, you know, they should be allowed to speak to. So that is one issue with tokenism. Um, secondly, we really want to be concerned about are we overtaxing or overburdening them? Mm -hmm. So if we are using one person to do all of the interviews because she just happens to be the one African-American female technical employee and you want all the new candidates coming in to think that you are the most diverse company ever, does she have time to get her work done? Mm -hmm. Does she have time to do her day job? And then when it comes time for promotion, and we're looking at what she did this year compared to a man who sits next to her who mm -hmm. didn't have to do all those interviews and speaking engagements mm -hmm. and recruiting events. Is it going to look equally upon them when it comes to promotion? Mm -hmm. Because she might not have delivered all of her you know, products or code requirements mm -hmm. because of that extra work. And there's, it sounds like there's a real possibility to, to place a great deal of burden upon people um, that come from diverse backgrounds in the pursuit of helping a company become more diverse. So we, it's almost like we take the work of white corporate America to we have to create better businesses, but we put that work on people who come from diverse backgrounds and say, well, you are a person of color who works in our company, so go do A, B, C, and D. And A, they might be totally open to it, but it takes up a lot of effort. It's a lot of work. Or B, perhaps they don't want to be in that position and we're making an assumption. And I, I think that's kind of a classic mistake that we, could, that we have to be aware of. Um, Carrie, is there anything you want to add in? Yeah, I think it comes down to authenticity. Um, people see through it. If you have um, an underrepresented person on a panel or at a meeting, I think it can become obvious if they don't know what they're talking about. And so I've, I've actually sat, sat through vendor meetings where they've clearly just brought the female because they're sitting in front of a female executive. And I think she was um, pressing the button to move the PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. And I was actually more frustrated. I would never go with that vendor. It just became obvious to me what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So I think just ensure that you're being really authentic and that person is going to contribute something really valuable because people will see through it. Mm -hmm. Also give the space for people to say no if it's not a space. So I am one of the only female executives. So I understand sometimes I'm like, I just, 
I'm don't use me like I'm tired of it. Um, and that's not a space I'm completely comfortable talking about. And so I feel comfortable saying no. It's not best to put me on a panel if I don't know what I'm doing or best to put me in a meeting in front of a client if I don't know. It's going to actually make it worse. Yeah. You're better to have all of our white males go right. in that circumstance. So just be yeah. authentic about it yeah. and then give space for people to say no. Yeah, I, I really like that. So you have to have the right intentions yeah. when you're asking someone to do it. It's not like, Oh, look, look, look how diverse we are, but more so saying, well, no, we really need to have the right intentions and also make sure that we have the, the space to say no. Yeah. It's very important that um, in this work that we treat all people with a great deal of respect. But when we have people who come uh, from diverse experiences or diverse backgrounds, we don't ever want to encourage the idea that we should increase the burden on people who have already had uh, quite a struggle. Um, of different levels of finding their space in in corporate North America or in the business world. So walk gently and kindly and openly in those space and without assumption. Great. All right. So uh, this has been an incredible conversation. I have learned so much and uh, it's been for me just a great pleasure to be speaking with you both for the past almost two hours. I can't believe it. So as we're closing off, I'd like to pass it over to Michelle. Is there anything you'd like to add in as we're closing off today? Yeah. And first of all, thanks for having us here. I think this is a really important conversation and it is something that is so on topic right now, especially in the corporate world. Mm -hmm. um, and because it's such a weird, diverse space, not to overuse diverse, but it mm -hmm. is. And the solutions we're trying to find are going to be unique to every situation and every company. But I think everybody just really needs to keep in mind that we are trying to make the best places for our employees and also just for the community at large, for our customer base, uh, you know, and everybody else we're, we're talking to and working with. I think really digging in and reading books by authors that do not look like you mm -hmm. is an important first step to just trying to understand what all of those little, you know, daily cuts and daily biases are that people experience. And, you know, also looking at movies and TV shows. Now, I think probably more than ever in history, do we have diverse TV shows and diverse movies from different perspectives, different authors, uh, you know, different producers, different directors, and really taking the time to look at what their experiences are mm -hmm. and have more understanding towards that. Because once we have that understanding, it will make these conversations and making decisions a lot easier. Great. Thank you so much. And Carrie. Yeah, thank you. So I just want to reiterate what Michelle said. This has been an absolute pleasure to be able to sit here and have a conversation on a topic that is actually one of the things I'm most passionate about. I could probably sit and talk for another couple of hours. <laughs> and um, I actually read a quote on Instagram and it's diversity is a fact, inclusion is a choice. And I really mm. love that. Yeah. And there's just so much that anyone could go and, and actually quickly learn. Um, and I really recommend everyone should read the book Better Allies. If you work with people, read that book. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, excellent. Um, so as we're closing off, um, something for the audience to consider. And I think about this every day. Um, we lived in very charged political times. Um, it's a little scary out there. And one of the things that I'm seeing is a big rise in anger and fear. I encourage anyone listening to this 
this is not the time for us to hide behind these things. It's not the time to sit on our opinions. And it's not the time for inaction. This is a time for action. It's a time for conversation. It's a time to find that courage to ask for other people to change and for us to change ourselves. So in this regard, when we're thinking about diversity and inclusion, it's not someone else's battle. It's not someone else's fight. This is for all of us. And we've got to focus every day about breaking down the walls. That was an incredible conversation. And thank you so much to Carrie and Michelle for joining us. When it comes to diversity and inclusion, there is no backseat. We all have a part to play in helping companies make good on their commitments to creating real change. This isn't an easy journey, but it's one that's essential. So thanks for joining us for our first episode. And until next time, this has been One Step Beyond. <laughs>